Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Psalm 51, those are the words that King David wrote after the prophet Nathan was sent by the Lord to him. That's what we're going to read together, 2 Samuel chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12 this morning, page 263, 263, or large print 309, if you're using that version. And I think as we read this portion of God's Word together, we can understand, can't we, David's David's broken cry as he writes Psalm 51. So let's hear the word of the Lord together. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Remember how chapter 11 ended? When the morning was over, David sent and brought Bathsheba to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing, nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Neither came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but instead he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, in your great kindness, may your living word this very day, in this very moment, be to us a mirror. May we see ourselves as you see us, as you alone see us, know us. And as we see ourselves, help us, we pray, to cast our all on you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Well, last Sunday morning, I've, I very much enjoyed speaking to many of you after last week's sermon on chapter 11. I think in all the conversations I had with you, there was a recurring pattern as we looked at David and what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah. The recurring pattern in all my conversations with you last Sunday was utter astonishment at the depths of David's sin. The king, the great man of Israel, he could do that. He digs and digs, doesn't he? Digs and digs. The black hole that he traps himself in just gets deeper and deeper. And yet, as I spoke to you friends last week, I was so encouraged, if, if that's the right word, encouraged that we saw David as a mirror for our own souls. Not one person to me last Sunday looking down on David. Oh, the terrible, tragic subtleties of our own sinful hearts. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. We've, we've all been there, haven't we? All been like him. And yet, I want to say this to us as we begin, astonishingly, amazingly, if you can believe it, friends, it is only now in chapter 12 that we touch the real nerve of it all. Only now in chapter 12 do we come up against the greatest evil that David commits. What we learn about David in chapter 12 explains what he did in chapter 11. There is something at the very heart of everything that has happened here. David's offenses against his office as king, his offenses against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against Joab, they are all evidence of his greatest crime his greatest sin, which is why he does what he does in chapter 11. It's why you and I do what we do when we sin the way we do. It's why you and I are like King David. We all do this same thing that is worse than lust. It is worse than murder. It is worse than adultery, but no one sees it. No one spots it. Friends, actually, no one even really thinks it's that bad. But always, always, it's evil comes to light in our actions. And maybe you saw it as we read chapter 12, verses 1 to 15. Maybe it will be news to you today. I want us to see five things together in these 15 verses this morning. What I'm calling, number one, the mercy of the sending. Number two, the hypocrisy of the responding. 
Number three, the consequences of the sinning. Number four, the heart of the deceiving. And number five, the shock of the removing. I don't think we'll get to look at all of them in in detail, but five things to see this morning. Number one, the mercy of the sending. Oh, the mercy of the sending. It's always worth pausing, isn't it, at the doorway to a chapter before we just rush in and, and, and think we want to get to the heart of the chapter. Prophet Nathan comes to King David with a brilliant strategy here. He comes to David with a story to flood the darkness of David's heart and to rise and to wake up his sleeping conscience. It's what one commentator calls the savvy of grace, the skill of grace, chapter 12. The scheming ingenuity of grace. Grace is far more than amazing, it's smart says this commentator, far more than amazing. Yes, we sing about amazing grace, but grace can also be smart, can't it? Grace can be savvy. That's what the parable of the rich man and the poor man will do. It's going to be a, a a wonderful way of David thinking he's gazing through a window only to discover, in fact, he's looking in a mirror. But First, friends, look at the mercy of the sending. Before we come to the the savvy of the grace, the mercy of the sending, before the brilliance of the telling, oh, the mercy of the sending. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Do not rush to the story, friends. Today, in this moment that we have here together, do not rush too quickly. Are those seven words at the very start of chapter 12, are they not a staggering mercy? The Lord sent Nathan to David. Did you know that the verb to send occurs 11 times in chapter 11? 11 times in chapter 11, the whole chapter is about sending, sending. David had sent his army to war. He sends for Bathsheba. She sends word to him. David sends to Joab. He sends Uriah. And what is it all about chapter 11? It is about him sending Uriah to his death, sending Uriah to his grave, an early grave. Chapter 11, verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Brothers and sisters, don't we have to confess that what we read next is astonishing in our day, as much as it was astonishing here, for what do you and I do when people sin grievously against us? Think about the last time somebody displeased you, did something evil in your eyes. What do you and I do to each other Sinner to fellow sinner, isn't it true we send them away? Be gone, out of my presence. I'm going to turn my back on you. We package up the cold shoulder and tie a bow on it and leave it there for the person to see. I'll give them what for. I'll show them. But what does God do? And the Lord sent. Not David away. The Lord sent Nathan to David, to, not away, to him. Oh, friends, make no mistake, chapter 12 
David is in for a bumpy ride here. The, the sending is going to shatter him. It's going to collapse his world and break him to the core of his being. But that is what grace does sometimes. Hatred, apathy, bitterness, those things leave somebody where they find them and leave them where they are after all that they've sinned or, wrong, or, or done wrong. But grace, grace, love, mercy sends to the person. Isn't this beautiful? Dale Ralph Davis says, you may succeed in unfaithfulness, but God will come after you. You may succeed in unfaithfulness, but God will pursue you. God will come after you. Don't you want to sing, friends? It's, it's amazing, isn't it? Maybe after chapter 11 last week, you have been grappling yourself with the deceitfulness of sin, and you haven't wanted to come out into the light or to confess your sin, and you're feeling trapped, but you shouldn't feel trapped. You need to come to repentance and to ask God for forgiveness because He sends to you. He sends. What did the Lord Jesus say? God is the one who has 100 sheep and one is missing. One sheep is missing and he sets out to look for it. He, he doesn't say, oh, well, I've got 99. 99 will do. That wasn't a great sheep anyway. That's the third time this week that sheep has got stuck in the ditch. Do you know what matters after massive catastrophe in every country? I was trying to think of the latest disaster. There's been so many recently, hasn't there? Some massive catastrophe in every country, a disaster, a terrorist attack. Do you know what matters when that happens in the land? Isn't it always true? What matters is that the person at the very top of the country needs to come to be with the people who are so broken. That the one with the power to effect change has to come to the broken and the needy and the hurting. Presidents, prime ministers, royalty, it's what they all do. This word sent here, friends, in chapter 12, verse 1, this is God in His wisdom in the Old Testament building space for what He will one day do Himself. He will come Himself to the lost and the sinful and the broken. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Son of Man came to seek and to save because the Father sent Him. Remember what Sinclair was showing us, John's Gospel, chapter 3. How do you measure love? How do you measure God's love? He sends. He sends His best. And so here, here we are this morning, you and I. We are here together in a moment of grace. God has sent His Son. And here now He sends His Word to all of us. The mercy of the sending. Number two, look at the hypocrisy of the responding. Look at the hypocrisy of the, of the responding. Nathan tells a story. And the whole point of the story is to get, to get David to walk into the middle of the room and for him to put his foot in the net and for him to spring the trap himself. That's the point of the story. We, we are heading, aren't we, to verse 5. 
Heading to verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. But, but look how David, look how Nathan takes David there. So, sometimes in my study, I, I, I read somebody who understands this brilliantly. This was my moment this week. Listen to this. Somebody read this story and they said, Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David even knew that he had a sword. Isn't that brilliant? Isn't that right? Nathan, Nathan's sword comes within an inch of David's conscience, and David is unaware that Nathan is even holding a sword. It's because Nathan's sword is, is sheathed inside once upon a time. He, he, he hides it. He cloaks it. There was a rich man and a poor man. Just notice the details of the story. It's so brilliant that the rich man, notice the rich man just has his many flocks and herds. He was fortunate. It's what happens if you're born into wealth. You just have these things. But the poor man, notice he had to buy his one little ewe lamb. He was ordinary. And he adored this lamb as his prized possession. Just, just look at three amazing features of the story. Each one is Nathan slowly unsheathing the sword. It is coming out more and more in his hand all the way through. First, the poor man's life with this lamb is all marked by giving and sharing. Do you notice it? Verse 3, he gives his food, he gives his drink, he gives his affection to it. The poor man gives and gives and gives. But what did David do in chapter 11? After sending, he took. He took. He took a wife and he took a life. Second feature of the story, there is delightful, innocent intimacy, isn't there, to the relationship. The ewe lamb lies in the poor man's arms. So look, friends, put all those verbs together, eating, drinking, lying. Eat, drink, lying. What does that sound like? Look back at chapter 11, verse 11. Chapter 11, verse 11. Uriah's being coaxed by David to return home to his wife. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? And thirdly, friends, in chapter 12, this, this ewe lamb is like a daughter to this man. The lamb is like a daughter to him. The, the scholars tell us that the Hebrew word for daughter is bath. The Hebrew word for daughter is bath. The lamb is like another bath, isn't she? Bath, Sheba. Now, 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 what is going on here? On one level, we're simply hearing the brilliance of storytelling, aren't we? As a means of getting underneath somebody's skin and snookering them. But of course, isn't the marvel here that it does snooker David? In other words, how can David not see this coming? This is not subtle. This is not understated. This is not ambiguous storytelling. This is actually sledgehammer storytelling, isn't it? With, with so many obvious hints to David to see himself in the story, and yet he does not see himself. Is that not amazing? Hint after hint after hint, and all that happens is that David responds with, dazzling hypocrisy. Dazzling hypocrisy. 
blinded by the light of the story, he cannot see himself in the story. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, this imaginary man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Oh, friends, do you know what the hypocrisy is there in verse 5? It's not just the anger. That is terrible, isn't it? The anger is terrible, yes. All the way through chapter 11, remember, not one single emotional comment from David. We are not told about anything he feels. What he does to Bathsheba and what he does to her marriage is grotesque. What he does to Uriah is catastrophic. And he does it saying, remember, to Joab, cheer up, man. These things happen. But the death of a lamb belonging to a a poor man, and he's furious? Come on, David, you hypocrite. We're all saying it, aren't we, from the gallery as we watch the story unfold? True, yes, but do you know what the greatest hypocrisy is here? In the law, the Old Testament, it mandated fourfold restitution for this kind of theft. That's why David says he shall restore the lamb fourfold. David is sticking to the law. He knows the law at this point. But look what else David says. This man deserves to die. The law did not mandate death for this kind of theft. No, David goes further than the law in his anger, and he says this man deserves to die, but what in fact did the Old Testament say does deserve death? Adultery. Adultery deserves death. Oh, friends, that that sword is now raised, isn't it, in Nathan's hand? Can you see it flashing? Can you see it there, what Nathan is holding? He has David right where he wants him. The king criminal has become the hypocrite judge, pronouncing a harsher sentence on the crimes of others than they deserve, all the while ignoring his own crime, which in fact deserves the sentence he wants to pay to this man. You see it? The hypocrite pronouncing a harsher sentence on the crimes of others than they deserve, ignoring his own crime, which in fact merits the punishment he wants to mete out on others. Who is this man? David says, where is he? Wait till I get my hands on him. You are the man, David, Nathan says. You are the man. It's you, David. You are the rich man in the story. You are the one who takes. You are the one who slaughters. You are the one who has taken and taken and taken and taken. Look look at the way it works now in verse 7. Look at the immediate switch. See how the verbs switch from David's taking what was not his to the Lord's giving to him what was not ever his to have, what he did not deserve. Thus says the Lord, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if all of this were too little, I would add to you much more. God gave and gave and gave. And David took and took and destroyed. And in his sin, he cannot even 
see it. Nestled in here, friends, is, is the third thing, the consequences of his sinning. The consequences of his sinning. I'm not going to say too much about this this week. The rest of the chapter is all about the consequences. We'll pick this up next Sunday. But just look at verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. It continues in verse 11. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. There there are consequences for sin, even for forgiven sin. I, I think that's hard for us to get our heads around, isn't it? It's hard, isn't it, right? Am I forgiven, Lord? If so, if I'm forgiven, why is this mess still here? Is forgiveness not real? David is repentant here, friends, in this chapter, beautifully repentant. He he is cut to the core, verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. He, He is repentant. He is forgiven. He is restored. And yet consequences of his sin remain. Such a big issue. Like I said, we'll come to it next week. Somebody has said repentance is like fetching a stone that has been thrown into a pool. You you throw somebody else's stone into the pool. You've you've wronged them. You, You go back in and you get the stone and give it back to them and the person says, I forgive you. That's repentance. But that stone that you threw into the pool the ripples still spread, even if you retrieve the stone. That's consequences. The Lord did not choose to stop the ripples. But I want to finish with these two, thing, two things, friends. We need to see them both. They're both a shock and a surprise, I think. Here's the fourth thing. Look at the heart of the deceiving. Look at the heart of the deceiving. And number five, look at the shock of the removing. I said at the very beginning, if you put chapters 11 and 12 together, in all of David's deceiving, there is one great evil at the heart of what he does, and there is a great removing at the heart of what God does. Both of these things are a shock to us, that the thing we maybe haven't even noticed is in fact the greatest evil, and that God will respond by removing it Look at the heart of the deceiving. And with this, we come to us, don't we? You and I today, whoever we are, whatever we've done. Look how it works. Look at verse 9. Notice how in verse 9 we get David's great crime. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife and killed him. That's David's great crime. But do you notice what comes before it in verse 9? Right at the start of the verse, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Do you see it? You despise the word of the Lord and then you ignore the ways of the Lord. Nathan doesn't start with Uriah and what David has done to him. He starts with what David has done to God. First, you despise the word of the Lord. Then you ignore the ways of the Lord. It's crystal clear in verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. 
Isn't it true that you could take out that phrase, you could take out despising the word of the Lord, you could take out you have despised me, and, and the text would read just fine. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. No. Because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Brothers and sisters, all of David's crimes in these chapters, his, his outward evil, it was only ever evidence of his greatest evil, which happened in his heart, first of all, which was to despise the word of the Lord. And so in despising the word of the Lord, he despised the Lord himself. I think you know this today. I know this. You know this, don't we, in, in how we treat one another? Isn't it true? How we treat somebody's word is how we treat the person. How we treat somebody's word is how we treat the person. So your, your best friend writes to you, and they say to you, let's meet for dinner. Let's meet on this day at this time in this place. I'll pay. And, and let's do such and such. And you ignore the message completely. Then they text you again and you ignore the text again and then they text a second time and you ignore it and a third time and you ignore it and th then eventually they meet you. And your friend says to you, I, I'm hurt. D didn't you get my messages? I I'm confused. I thought we were friends. And you look at your friend and you say, what's, what's the problem? Of course we're still friends. Those were just your words. I wasn't ignoring you. I was just ignoring your words. No, no, life does not work like that, does it? God doesn't work like that. We, we don't treat one another like that. When, when we ignore words, we ignore the person. When we ignore God's word, we ignore him. Can, can you take that in? Do you want to know where you are with God today? Do you want to know where you are with him? Tell me where you are with the Bible and what the Bible says. That's where you are with God. People say this all the time, don't they? Oh, I, I, of course I love God. I, 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 I love him with all my heart, but I don't like that particular bit in the Bible. I don't like that bit about sex or relationships or the Old Testament bits or whatever it is. Take your bit, take your pick, friend, from whatever part of the Bible it is that people tend not to like. Oh, I despise those bits, but I love him. Really? Didn't you get my text, God says? Didn't you get what I sent you? I know you say you love me, but... How you treat what I've said is how you treat me. Listen to Alistair Begg. David's actions here flow from the fact that he refuses to do what the Bible says. Friend, check it out in your own life and you will discover that to be the case. On every occasion where you have made a major right-hand turn where it should have been a left or staying straight down the pathway, on every single moment you have gone wrong, you can trace it back to the fact that you knew what the Bible says and you decided you knew better than the Bible. 
or that it didn't apply to you in that particular instant, or that there was some other extenuating circumstance that made it possible for you to get a special pass on just this occasion. And then Alistair Begg says, or am I just describing myself? James, in the New Testament, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. And so our dazzling hypocrisy is there, isn't it, on every hand. We hear God speak week after week after week. We open the Bible day after day. We, we read it and we ignore it. We see the sins of others, and we are outraged. How dare they? How could they? How could you, we say, to those closest to us? All the while, God says to us, there is no one righteous. No one, not, not even one. You, little man on your high horse, pontificating about the sins of others, you are not righteous either. And yet I will gladly, happily climb onto my high horse and tell you about the speck in your eye while I ignore the plank in my own. We have despised God because we have hated His Word. It's the primal sin, isn't it, from the Garden of Eden onward. Do you remember the voice of the serpent? Did God really say... Oh, Nathan says to David, you have despised the word of the Lord. You have despised me. And so, friends, I think it makes the word of the Lord in verse 13 to David so remarkable. So remarkable. Here is the shock of the removing. The shock of the removing. Verse 13, David is broken, isn't he? I have sinned against the Lord. Apparently, in Hebrew, it's just two words. Only two words. Somebody has said that the fewness of the words indicates the thoroughness of the confession. Isn't that right? Just, I'm sorry, I was wrong. You were right. The, the, the more words they are, there are, the more we tend to be adding ifs and buts and maybes. But here there is no qualification. I am guilty. You are in the right and I am in the wrong. How do you plead Guilty, guilty. And so, friends, the terrible shock of verse 13, the astonishing shock, what do you expect will come next? I am guilty, so you shall die, death. No. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Oh, the shock, friends, the shock of the removing of David's sin. The Lord has put away your sin. How? Really? The shock God is putting away something that he should be putting on David. Getting rid of something that he should be leaving us with. How on earth can this be right? How can David do all of this? 
all of it. Can you imagine to have heard what Nathan said to him, to, to be the man who has done this and who now comes into the presence of a holy God through his prophet, the righteous holy God hears and sees and he is just going to put it away? Just like a child putting a dirty sock under the bed. Tidy your room, we say to the children and the children go up and the tidying is alternative, isn't it? What is dirty is just hidden, not, not, not removed. Is that, is that what God is doing here and putting away sin? No, we, we know it's not, don't we? It, it can never be, it never is. That, that little phrase in verse 13, friends, the Lord has put away your sin. It is just, just a pointer, isn't it? It's a glorious hint, a glorious hint. God never, ever sweeps sin under the carpet. No, if God is putting it away somewhere, he has to put it somewhere. It, it has to go somewhere. And he puts it, doesn't he, on our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember in chapter 11, Uriah talked about the Ark of the Covenant. That Ark that meant so much to Uriah that had within it the Ten Commandments that David has shattered here. You, you may know that that ark had on its top of the, on the top of the ark, it had the golden mercy seat, the golden wings of the angels that faced each other, their, their wings facing each other. That, that ark symbolized God's presence. The whole thing you see was a picture of God's perfect holiness, his, his law inside the ark, his glory outside the ark. How can you come near to him? You can only come near to him if your breaking of the law is covered. If your breaking of the law is put away somewhere. It's what the mercy seat did on the top of the ark. The high priest would sprinkle blood on the seat, the sacrificial blood of an animal, so that the sin of breaking the law could be covered, covered with blood. Ah, that's how God covers sin, isn't it? He doesn't cover sin with a blind eye. He doesn't put sin away with a blanket. He doesn't put sin away by just clicking delete, deleting the files. No, he covers sin with blood, innocent blood for guilty sinners. You know, Psalm 51 that we sang together, I often wonder about this. I can't prove this, but I often wonder when David said in Psalm 51, God, wash me, wash me, make, make, make me clean. I just wonder if he just thinks back to where he first saw Bathsheba. Do you remember where he first saw her? Taking her bath, her, her ritual cleansing bath, her bath to make herself holy. Just wonder if David is thinking, Lord, that very moment, oh, I would give anything to go back to that moment to be clean like she was clean, to be pure. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Oh, the waters of cleansing that I desecrated, I know I now need them. I want to be clean as God washes away 
my sin. Dear friend, you can be clean. For David was clean. You can be clean. I can be clean. Because of Jesus. Amen.